So in the midst of um, the, the breaking stories of the news of this virus, it, it seems very clear, at least for me, and I know probably for you as well, that it is an election year based on the way uh, certain people are being blamed. And it all who's being blamed just depends on which news station you're watching. Uh, there's this one man, uh, a conservative commentator, who you may know, who has kind of risen in prominence the last, I don't know, five years. Uh, he's an Orthodox Jew by the name of Ben Shapiro. And like I said, you may uh, recognize his name or be familiar with him. He's known... Uh, for these these interviews and these conversations or talks at universities, and he has this kind of a, almost a computer-like ability to to pick apart arguments, um, and then to just respond with so many so much information. But one of the things, one of the statements that he has made that he's very known for, is that facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. And the reason I bring that up is because today we are starting a new series, and I'm pretty pretty excited, pretty pumped about this. We'll be looking through the gospel according to Luke, and he has Luke has a similar sentiment to Ben Shapiro, because Luke views our faith as founded on facts. It is historical and it is reliable, and it's founded on that and not feelings. And we'll get into that more as we jump in this. Um, It's a a similar view of what one scholar, J.G. Mackin, writes. He says this, The Christian movement at its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way of life founded upon a message. It was based not upon mere feeling, not upon mere program of work, but upon an account of facts. And as I said, today we're starting to work through the gospel of Luke, as, as Seth just read for us. And, I, and like I said, I'm pumped. We're looking at the, the story, the life, the work of Jesus, the Messiah, the King. And before we jump into that, and today we're going to look at, at Luke's prologue right in the beginning here. But before we jump into that, um, let's, let's look at why there are four Gospels and just a little background of Luke before we jump in. And you may have wondered as you as you read through the Bible yourselves or if you just flip open, why is there four accounts? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Why are there four accounts of the same uh, events, if you will? On a very uh, practical way or, or level is that's just how God the Spirit chose to work. That he inspired four people to write these four accounts that were inspired by God that that detailed or accounted the life of Christ. That's on, on a very practical level. Um, but as, as you read each of these different accounts, we need to keep in mind that Jesus, these accounts of Jesus, that they're written to particular people with a particular purpose from a particular perspective, but yet do not contradict each other, but they complement each other. Let me say that again. As we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, which we're going to get through, or John, we need to keep in mind that they're they're written to a particular people with a particular purpose from a particular perspective, yet they do not contradict, but yet they complement each other. For example, if you look at John, it's written by the Apostle John for the purpose of evangelism, which John makes very clear in chapter 20. And so he organizes his account, he organizes his account of Jesus, around seven major miracles or signs. Compare that with Mark, 
which is written by John Mark, who records the perspective of the Apostle Peter, as John Mark is connected with Peter. It's the shortest, and it's about brevity. It's, it's the bare bones of the story, and it's written to the, the Romans. Then you've got Matthew, which is written by the Apostle Matthew, and it's written to a Jewish audience with the purpose of showing that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. Therefore, as you look through it, there are many Old, Te- Old Testament references and allusions, and they're all the content is all organized around Jesus' sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. Then you get to Luke, which we're looking at today, which is written by Luke, who we will see has different sources, like the Apostle Paul, and it's written to Gentiles. And so you, you see that each of these they have a particular purpose, a particular audience in mind. And so the way they write is a little different in order to, to account for that purpose. And these accounts, they, that does not mean that they're concoctions or fabrications. Because they, they may change some chronological um, order in order to emphasize things such as doctrine or themes. Which was completely natural at the time as you record history. Um, for us, with a more of a Western mindset and what we're used to, that's not necessarily what we mean by historical. But please keep in mind, that does not mean they're fabrications at all. Yet just the opposite is it's, it's showing that they're eyewitness accounts and they're merely moving some things just to put emphasis on certain things. So, as we look through Luke, a little background of Luke. He's an interesting man. From different evidence... It seems most likely that he was a very well-educated Gentile. He means he's not Jewish, which makes Luke the only Gentile to have written a book in the Bible, the only one, Luke. And he writes a two-volume book. Luke is part one, and Acts is part two. Luke wrote both. As you'll see, if you jump to Acts at the beginning of chapter one, he again uh, mentions Theophilus. That he, that's who he's specifically writing to. So you've got Luke. He writes Luke and he writes Acts. And together it's a massive work because it, it, it makes up about a quarter of the New Testament. So this Gentile man, Luke, writes a lot in the New Testament. He's not an apostle, but he was a close companion of one, namely the apostle Paul. And he traveled with Paul, as you'll see in, in Acts. If you look through that, you, there's a lot of we statements. Luke is saying that we went there. He's saying that he and Paul went over there, including some other people. And what's also interesting to know is that towards the end of Paul's life, a lot of people abandoned him. But Luke was one of the few that sticked with him. Luke stayed with Paul. Uh, again, little is known about Luke. Um, there's not much details about him. He, doesn't, he does not say much about himself at all. But we do know that he's a physician from other accounts that Paul writes. And here, let me give you some some big themes in Luke's gospel that we'll see, just so you can have a clear vision of what we're diving into the next few months here. At the very heart of Luke's gospel account is the relentless progression of Christ toward the cross. If you look, Luke is made of uh, 24 chapters, I believe. At the end of chapter 9 till the, the rest of it, it's, it's very clear that Luke is making it very specific that Jesus is progressing to the cross. He's making his way to Jerusalem because it's, that's, the, that's the, this big point is Luke writing about Jesus' his, his mission to get to the cross. Another thing about Luke is that he highlights Jesus' unique ministry 
to the outcasts of society, such as people like tax collectors, women, children, Gentiles, Samaritans, the sick, disabled, poor, sinners. Luke highlights how Jesus goes to the outcasts. Luke also focuses on the sovereignty and the plan of God, that God is in control. And we can see this as Paul said, I'm sorry, that Luke says multiple times these frequent terms of it is necessary that this happened. Or he'll phrase it as Jesus must do this. Just showing the sovereignty of God through it all. And also something unique about Luke is that he puts the most focus on the role of the Holy Spirit as compared with the other three gospel accounts. Luke really emphasizes the role of the Spirit. So those are some of the reasons that we're going to be going through Luke, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, another huge thing is Luke's fantastic, if I can use that word, his purpose in writing, which comes from our prologue, which we're going to look at today. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 1. And most of your Bibles, the editor of it, will probably have uh, blocked off this section, verses 1 through 4, because this is Luke's prologue. So unlike the other three Gospels, Luke adds a prologue where he explains how he's writing, what he's writing, and why he's writing. And it's interesting to note that in the original language, this is all one big sentence. And it's written in a very polished style of Greek that kind of sets it apart as a literary work. That prologue is. But then the rest of Luke is in the common language, the everyday language. And so Luke, on purpose, sets this prologue apart. Why? Because it says that this gospel is a serious literary and historical work and it commands the respect of even the most sophisticated and educated readers. That's what this prologue is doing. That's the purpose of why Luke is doing this. Now, as we read through this prologue, which we're going to walk through here, listen or look for the sense that Luke gives about her faith, that it's built on facts and it's not built on just wishy-washy feelings. There's a firm foundation for faith. Listen as we go through this in the prologue that Luke gives the sense. It's about facts and not our feelings. So here we go. The first part we see, this is verses 1 and 2, Luke tells us how he's doing his writing. He tells us how he's doing his writing. Verse 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So, remember that Luke is not an apostle. He is not an eyewitness to most, if any, of these events that are in Jesus' life. So, Luke, in that way, is very much like us. So, but... Luke describes how he's going about this writing. And so he tells us about his sources in verses 1 and 2, which is important because Luke's writing is only as good as his sources. His writing is only as good as his sources. And so he first says this. He says, some have already taken upon themselves to compile these accounts. There are some who are are compiling the accounts of these events. And specifically, the events he refers to are things that have been accomplished among us. Things that have been accomplished among us. What is he referring to? God's intervention in history coming as as a man, Jesus the God-man, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, these things that God has accomplished among us for man's salvation, that are the things that have been accomplished, that's been divinely accomplished, 
And Luke is saying there have been some who've already compiled things on these accounts that have been uh, have been accomplished. So he says some have already done this, but he makes mention of their sources and his sources, which are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Luke's sources are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Who are these people? Number one, as I mentioned before, Luke traveled with Paul, an apostle, an eyewitness to the resurrected Messiah, and a minister of the word. That is a a, a big source of Luke's is Paul. Mark and Luke, Mark, the, the writer, John Mark, of the gospel, he traveled, both of them traveled with Paul. And so potentially... Luke received some information from Mark, who received his from Peter, the Apostle Peter. And here's another potential avenue for these sources, is that during Paul's two-year imprisonment in Caesarea, it was very likely that Luke could have visited Jerusalem, where he could have connected with Matthew, where he could have connected with Mary, where he could have connected with the other apostles. But the point being is this. Luke's sources are eyewitnesses. Now imagine this with me. You and a buddy, a friend, are driving to town, Bemidji, Bakley, whatever. And you're driving, and you, co- and you drive by the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah Witnesses. And there's a group of the Jehovah Witnesses outside, and they're walking. There's a group walking outside. All of a sudden, a car coming the opposite way blows a tire and starts going out of control, going right for the, the, the group of Jehovah Witnesses, just misses them, and crashes into a, car, or a tree. So you get out and you want to make sure everyone's okay. So you go over there, um, you go over to the car, and then the driver has um, some whiplash from slamming the brakes and into the, the tree. But the, the Jehovah Witnesses come over and they pray over them, and then you and your friend continue to town. Now, with that, what would you do if the next few days, a few days later, your friend that's with you started to tell people that you were driving to town? You're driving by the kingdom of Hall of Jehovah Witnesses. And there was a group of them praying. All of a sudden, a car was coming the other way. A tire blue was going straight for the, the crowd of the Jehovah Witnesses. And then miraculously, the group was thrown out of the side. The, the car crashed into the tree. And you guys came. You got out of your car. You guys went to the car. And you found the person unconscious. But then the Jehovah Witnesses prayed over them. And then miraculously, they woke up. How would you respond? You would probably respond and go out and tell people that is not at all what happened. Not at all. And you could correct your friend's false story because you were there, you were an eyewitness, and you're saying, nope, that's not true at all. My point in saying that is that Luke is writing from the sources of eyewitnesses, and he writes during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, which means that if Luke decides to stretch a story, If Luke decides to fabricate a story about Jesus, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of eyewitnesses that could have easily said, that is absolutely false, Luke. There's no way that happened. I was there. That did not happen. And Luke would then lose all of his credibility. But that is not the case. Because Luke is writing accurate accounts from eyewitnesses, and no eyewitnesses ever pose it, because that's how it happened. And so his sources are eyewitnesses. Luke is completely reliable Because it's based on eyewitness accounts delivered to people during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. As Matthew Henry writes, the written gospel, which we have to this day, exactly agrees with the gospel which is preached in the first days of the church. 
So that's the first part in Luke's prologue is how he's writing. He's writing from reliable sources, from other eyewitnesses that that are held to the utmost accountability by other eyewitnesses during that time. So that's how Luke writes. Number two, the second part, is then Luke tells us what he writes. Verse three, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke tells us he's going to write an orderly account. And in the beginning, he says, it seemed good to me also. And that's the only reference Luke makes to himself. Like I said, he doesn't talk much about himself. And the reason Luke can write an orderly account is because he says he has followed all things closely for some time past. Luke's work, the gospel account we have in front of us, is a fruit of investigative work. He says he, 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 uh, he has followed all things from some time past. From the very beginning, Luke has been following this. Hence, as you look at Luke, there's this new material about John the Baptist. There's new material about the Jesus' birth because Luke has he's investigated all that. From the very beginning, he's looked into these things and he's investigated all reliable sources he could get on. He followed them, as he says here, closely for some time, very care, carefully. This is not, the point we're trying to get across here, this is not some narrative that Luke threw together, not something he fabricated. The eyewitness, eyewitnesses would be able to tell him, nope, that's not true. And he's been very carefully following these things. He's connected with all the different reliable sources he could. Therefore, Luke is qualified to write this account. It's the fruit of very careful and thoroughly investigated study. And so he says he writes an orderly account. Now, as I said earlier, these four accounts, they write to capture these accounts of Jesus' life, but they write to specific people with a specific reason. And as a result, the, the writers, they don't always lay the gospel in exactly chronological order because they could kind of rearrange some things for the emphasis or the, the doctrine taught in those events and the relationship they have around them. And we'll see that as we get into Luke. But the point is this, that Luke, he really does stay mostly chronologically. We also see that he stays to the geographic travel of Jesus. He sticks pretty well with that. And then he also works in the progress of salvation, first to the Jesus' disciples, then to Jerusalem, and then beyond, as we see in Acts. But of great significance with that, yes, Luke is reliable. Luke has reliable sources. Luke takes the utmost to look at these resources, to study them, to compile them. But even more significant is that, is that he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guided Luke's research. The Holy Spirit utilized Luke's knowledge. The Holy Spirit controlled every single word that Luke penned so that it's exactly what God willed to be written. Yet, the Holy Spirit does not bypass, does not override Luke's personality, Luke's vocabulary, or his style. But it's done so that the end, the end of work that we have before, it's Luke's compiled work. But it's inspired and orchestrated by the Spirit so that its original account is inerrant and infallible. So Luke, he took utmost effort and care to compile all these events, to carefully compile it, make sure that they're reliable, 
There's that, and then he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. As Matthew Henry, he writes this, he had received his intelligence not only by tradition, as others had done, but by revelation, confirming that tradition and securing him from any error or mistake in the recording of it. So Luke wrote an orderly account founded on his careful investigative work and secured as without error as by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then you see here, he tells us who he's writing to, most excellent Theophilus. And you see in Acts, that's the name, the same name. Luke's second volume is directed to Theophilus as well. And the word excellent is used other times in Acts by Luke to refer to officials in the Roman government. So most likely, this is what Theophilus is. He had some kind of position in the Roman government. The name Theophilus means lover, or I'm sorry, friend of God. Theophileo, friend of God. So most likely, as we're looking through this, Luke is writing to Theophilus, a Gentile who, as we look at Luke's content, may have been experiencing doubt about his association with Jesus and the followers of Jesus. He may have been experiencing doubt. But keep in mind that as Luke writes specifically to Theophilus, that doesn't mean he didn't mean to address other people as well. It was very common to address a specific person, but intended for a lot more readers, such as you and I. So Luke writes an orderly account. That's what he writes. And he writes an account rooted in the reliable eyewitness accounts. And that's how he writes. And that brings us to the third point. The reason for writing. Why does he write? Verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty. So Luke's purpose in writing the gospel account we have before us is that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught about Christ and Christianity. This word certainty is is used by Luke in Acts 2.36 as he records Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is how it's used. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so Luke presents this, uh, this account of the gospel that's been investigated, recorded. It's been inspired by the Holy Spirit for the purpose that we may have assurance of the truthfulness and the reliability of the gospel. Theophilus had doubts. Theophilus had hard questions. He saw the increasing opposition to Christianity, of the, of the, the Christian faith at that time. So Luke writes to Theophilus that he can be certain of the truth so that he will remain faithful and committed to Christ. Let me say it again. Theophilus had doubts. He had hard questions. He saw the opposition to Christianity in the culture, in the Roman culture. So Luke writes to Theophilus saying, for the strict purpose, for that Theophilus could have certainty of the things that have been written about Christ that he has learned so that Theophilus can remain committed and faithful to Christ. And I'm sure for those listening and for me as well, that there's some among us who struggle with doubts. Some of those among us who may have very hard questions and some who may see Christianity being labeled as bigotry or, or hate speech or whatever in our culture and may be wondering, what does this all mean? Luke writes to you and to me that we can be certain of the faith. We can be certain of the events of Christ. We can be certain of his life, his work, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his lordship. We can be certain. And that is why 
Luke writes. And so you can get the sense of Luke, right? The sense that's about facts and it's not about feelings. Uh, you can hear that this is reasonable. The, the faith is reasonable. It's reliable. It is certain. It is grounded in facts. So Luke writes to Theophilus that we have a reasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. It's not wishful thinking. The object of our faith is trustworthy because there's evidence. There's his, history, evidence in history. There's, there's evidence everywhere. There's an account of Jesus. There's evidence. We have a reasonable faith. Some may conceive of faith um, as simply an experience of emotion or, or a feeling, and you just need to let go and jump in the dark, like a leap of, a leap of faith, jump in the dark, not knowing. That's not how Luke comprehends this. That's not how he understands faith. Just the opposite. He writes to Theophilus that he may be certain of the things he has taught. Uh, and Luke, I'm sorry, Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, he says this, To the apostles, Christ presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking the kingdom of God. So according to Luke, even Jesus was concerned to provide fully adequate evidence and proof. And so Luke, in God inspiring him, wants you to know not only what you believe, but why that you have certainty. There was a man in the, the mid-1900s. Uh, he grew up not having the best life. He grew up with drug dealing, gambling, pimping. He was involved in robbery. And he would have sex with men, usually for money. As you would guess, this eventually led him to prison. And it's in prison that he turned his life around. He no longer did those things. He walked out of prison a completely different man. Who was he? Malcolm X. And what happened? He was converted to the nation of Islam. My point in saying that is that the reason why we believe what we believe should not be on experiences or feelings because experiences do not validate truth. They do not validate truth. In fact, honestly, if the reason for our faith is based on feeling and experiences, then we have much more in common with the Mormons, with their burning of the bosom, and we have far more in common with our culture and moral relativism that our truth works for us. We have far more in common with them than we do with the biblical Christianity, which is it's a certain reasonable faith. So our faith is not based on feelings or experiences, but on truth, facts, real, reality, and history. Luke writes in Acts 17, he praises the Bereans, and you may remember them, that they heard the, the, the message from the, the apostles and they, when they received it, they eagerly examined the scriptures to see if it was so. They used their minds to make sure that this is reliable, that this is true. And that's what it is. Christianity encourages your mind, as Luke is writing here. It encourages your mind. Romans 12, 2, Ephesians 4. Transformation comes from the renew of our mind. Christianity is all about truth, about facts and reality. Salvation and faith and following Jesus is equated with believing the truth. John 8, 31, 32, 1 Timothy 2. Conversely, those leaving the faith are described as those leaving the truth. 2 Timothy 4, 4, 2, um, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10, on and on. I'm, I'm saying these quick just to give you the what this is. We are saved by the word of truth. 
as James says, 118, we are sanctified by the word of truth, as Jesus prays, John 17, 17. We're called to obey the truth, 1 Peter 1, 22, and then Galatians 5, 7. As we saw last week, spiritual warfare is combating air with truth, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're called to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4, and even confronting those who turn from the truth, uh, James 5.19. But we saw that in Galatians 2 when Paul confronted Peter, when he his life was not in line with the gospel. Paul saw his mission as helping God's people to know the truth, Titus 1.1. It is the job of the elders in our church and other churches to rightly handle the truth, to preach it, and to defend that. 2 Timothy, all over 2 Timothy. And Christianity is based on a God who acts in history. It's based on evidence, reliable, and reality. In the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, God's people are called over and over and over to trust in the God who brought them out of Egypt. In the New Testament, over and over, we're, we're told to trust in the God who sent Jesus, became man, died for us, rose again, was ascended to heaven, and we should trust in him. My whole point of saying is this. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith. In light of the evidence. It's based on facts, history, and reality. It is not a blind faith. It is not a crutch. It is the reasonable response to reality. And Luke writes. He writes to Theophilus so that he could be certain of the things taught. And the reason he writes that we can be certain. Why he talks about the certainty. Is so that we stay committed to Christ. So that we trust all the more with our lives to Christ. And that we obey him in all the areas. It is in modern American Christianity alone that there's an acceptance of mediocrity and ignorance when it comes to what we believe, why we believe, and about what we believe. I heard a preacher uh, make this point before. Think of any job, any job or culture, truck driving, um, cotton wood, financial planning, managing, you name it. Think of any job. If a young man, woman comes up to an older man or woman who's been doing the work for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. If that young person comes up and says, hey, I see you've been doing this for a while. You must be a master at this. Uh, I, I would love to just come alongside just to kind of see how you do it. And if you could show me the ropes. We would expect in any of those jobs that the older person to, okay, start start verbally teaching them how to do things, um, showing them how to do things that we would expect that. We would be appalled if the opposite happened. If that man said, the young person went up to the older man and says, hey, I see you've been doing this for 10, 20, 30 years. You must be a master at this. Could you show me the ropes? If that person said, no, I'm no master. Uh, I, I don't know anything about no bricklaying. I don't know anything about truck driving. Uh I don't know anything about that. That would be totally unacceptable. Except in the church. It is only in the church where a man or woman who has been following Christ for 10 plus years, a person that younger people in the faith look up to, that when asked, hey, can do you mind if I, uh, can you teach me what it means to follow Christ, what it looks like to parent, what it looks like in my marriage, what it looks like, could I, could you kind of follow me to teach me here how to do this? It's only in a church where it's acceptable for someone to say, you know, I don't really know. 
I don't really know anything about following Jesus. I, I don't really know about anything like doctrine or theology or the Bible or church history. You know, I, I, you shouldn't look to me as an example. The church is the only place, the only place that men and women can proudly declare that they're ignorant. That it's the only place where there's an acceptance of mediocrity and ignorance. And my point in saying that is that Luke writes that we can be certain. He writes so that you can know what you believe, why you believe, and then effectively communicate that to others. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter writes this, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So as a follower of Christ, you can be certain of what you believe. You must be certain of what you believe, why you believe it, and be able to communicate to it. Because as you come in contact with a hurting, dying world in your job, in your, in your school, with your neighbors, whatever, community events, they'll ask for the hope that's within you. And you must be able to communicate what you believe, why you believe it, and then effectively communicate that to them. We must be able to hold to the faith against skeptics, against politicians, against our own emotions, against circumstances. So we need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and be able to communicate that to others so that we can fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples by baptism and teaching them to obey all things that Jesus has commanded. So Luke writes, so you can be certain of what you've been taught to have a solid foundation for this. Let me give an example. When someone asks you, and you probably possibly already had this happen a few times. So when someone asks you accusatively, how can you believe the Bible? It's so outdated. It's, ir- it's irrelevant. It's from these past ancient cultures. And like, it has so much hateful speech and bigotry in it. How can you believe it? How would you answer them? I hope... That it's not an answer like, hey, it, it works for me, you should try it out. I don't say that to, to, to get them, but that, that's nothing different than what our culture is saying. Listen, uh, we should have a certain answer. And this is this comes from a, a pastor, or I'm sorry, a, a, a scholar, writer, Bodhi Bakum. He says this, this is how we can answer. I believe the Bible is true because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human origin. And then we can go further. We can add on to that and say the, the Bible is an ancient book attested by an unparalleled amount of manuscripts and unprecedented inaccuracy where even the scribal errors are never significant to change theology and the causes of which are easily determined. We could then follow up that the Bible is written over 1,600 years in, in 66 books of a variety of genres of literary work uh, by over 40 authors from a diverse group of professions on three continents in three languages, yet comes together unified as one book with one message running through the whole entire book. And that's why we believe that God's word is God's word and authoritative. And the point is showing that we know what we believe. We know that God's word is authoritative. We know that it is his word, his revelation. And we know why we believe it. This is why I believe God's word should be authoritative for my life and your life. And we should be able to communicate that effectively. And so Luke writes, I keep on coming back to this, because Luke writes that we can be certain. We can have certainty in our faith. It's not a, a, 
a, a wishy-washy kind of feeling. It's a firm foundation. It's a reliable faith. Let me um, pause here and, and possibly uh, address an objection, which is that Christianity is, you just saying Christianity is just a, a mere intellectual pursuit. Nope, not at all. James says in chapter 1, uh, or chapter 2, I apologize, um, that the demons believe the truth and they shudder. They know the truth. They believe it. They know it. But Christianity is not just an intellectual pursuit. The point that I'm saying that Luke is saying here is that it is founded on facts. It's founded on rea- reality. It's founded on history. It's a reasonable faith. And it's from this foundation that leads us to respond. It leads us to respond. So Luke writes, he writes about the certainty of our faith so that Theophilus can be continued to be committed and to faithful to Christ, even as there is opposition against them. And so we, we can hear about this reasonableness of our faith which will drive us to respond with trusting God more, following and obeying Him more, and then being able to share that with others. We know that when there's this lack of clarity, action doesn't happen, right? In your workplace, business, whatever. If we don't have clear directions, clear expectations for our work and stuff, it's kind of aimless, it's kind of directionless. And in the same way, this, this lack of clarity would cause us to hesitate and there's no action. But Luke says there's reasonable, our faith is reasonable. It's certain. It's clear. This is reality. This is, this is what, how God worked in history. This is reasonable. Therefore, respond, repent, and believe in Christ and to follow him and obey. Teach your children and share with others. So the call to submit to Christ in faith and repentance and then to obey him is the only reasonable response to reality. So let me close this then. So we're, we're jumping to Luke, and I'm, I'm really excited. I hope you are excited. Um, so we see that he writes to Theophilus, but he writes to more than that, but specifically to Theophilus, so that he can have certainty of the gospel. And he calls them to respond by trusting in Christ, by obeying Christ, and teaching others to do the same. We see that Luke writes as an historian, one whose sources are reliable eyewitness accounts. He writes as an evangelist, proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He writes as an apologist, writing to show that the message of Jesus is reliable and defensible. He writes as a pastor to reassure Theophilus as he questions and doubts. And he writes as a discipler, teaching to obey all that Jesus commanded. And so our faith, Leave it with this. Our faith is reasonable. Jesus is Lord. He is King. It, the only reasonable response is to repent and trust in Him, to continue to repent and to continue to trust in Him and come to Christ for life.